Before listening to this episode, please note that the most recent episodes entitled Wretched John are part of a connected narrative and should be listened to in the order of their release to understand the full context of the story. However, all other episodes of Forgotten are standalone and can be listened to in any order. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten Podcast. This is Wretched John, and I'm Ronnie Brown. Although the captain and most of the crew survived the storm, the situation was still a source of tense apprehension to all aboard the Greyhound. The damage to the ship's outer hull had been repaired with only makeshift mains. Much of the ship's blankets and clothing had been used to patch the leaks. This left them vulnerable to the cold weather of the North Atlantic in early spring. The sails were badly damaged, making any progress by the winds, which were favorable at the time, slow and inconsistent. All the ship's food provisions were ruined and the livestock washed overboard, leaving them only a limited amount of the codfish that was caught off the banks of Newfoundland before starting back to England, and some fodder that was used to feed the hogs. Together, all that remained in limited rationing was about enough to last a week. The bleak outlook that hung like a fog over the fearful crew did have a moment of reprieve when one morning, a few days after the storm, A cry sounded from the watch that land had been sighted. Desperate crewmen all crowded onto the deck and strained at the horizon to make out a mountainous coast that came to a point, followed by two or three islands, a sighting that resembled a northwest shoreline of Ireland. Relief broke out among the men, and the captain ordered that the last pint of brandy be divided among the crew. But it wasn't long that as the morning light grew, the sighting was found merely to be a mirage caused by low-hanging clouds in the distance. This sudden reversal was followed shortly thereafter by a drastic change in the winds. The steady sea breeze, which up to this point had been fair and driving the broken vessel homeward, suddenly dwindled away, and by the next day, were pushing the boat further away from any hopes of finding land. Captain Swanick, whose demeanor drastically changed following the storm, no doubt because he was keenly aware of the grave situation they were all in, began to angrily lash out at John, reasoning that he was the sole reason for all that had befallen them, and that throwing him overboard must surely be the only remedy to save all their lives. John would later recount how that, quote, the continued repetition of this in my ears gave me much uneasiness, especially as my conscience seconded his words. I thought it very probable that all that had befallen us was on my account, that I was at last found out by the powerful hand of God and condemned in my own breast, end quote. Although the captain did not follow through with the threat, It is certain that John was in a continual uneasiness of just such a fate. 
And had there not been another drastic change in their circumstances, the captain may well have made good on his threat. But just at the point of their complete despair, the winds yet again blew favorably, allowing for the ship to make maximum headway toward land. Within a few days, through the providential hand of God, the beleaguered greyhound limped into Loch Swilly in Ireland on the 8th of April, 1748. After seeing how the last of their food supplies and fresh water were just enough to see them into port, and how that within two hours of their arrival, a drastic change in the winds took place such that would have blown their broken vessel out to sea and to certain death, John's faith took a final formation, writing, quote, About this time, I began to know that there is a God that hears and answers prayer, end quote. As health and strength were recovered, he began to exemplify the seriousness of his profession. John maintained his efforts of daily reading the scriptures as had been his practice since the days following the storm, but along with it, added twice a day prayers at church, Lord's Day worship, and was determined to receive the sacrament on the next opportunity. On the morning of which, he writes, quote, I arose early and was very particular and earnest in my private devotion and with the greatest solemnity engaged myself to be the Lord's forever and only His. This was not a formal but a sincere surrender under a warm sense of mercies recently received, end quote. During this time, John wrote to his father, who had lost all prospect of ever seeing his son again. Both father and son had hopes of meeting, but John Sr. had received the letter just days before sailing to Canada to become governor of York Fort in Hudson Bay in present-day Manitoba. Sadly, the two would never have a chance to see each other again because shortly before his arrival, John Sr. drowned in a swimming accident. But before leaving... In hopes of once again giving his son every advantage for a happy and prosperous life, John Senior made his way to Chatham to pay a visit to the Catlett family. While there, the old family wounds were healed, and John's father gave them his permission for his son to pursue marriage to Polly Catlett. But this meeting was unbeknownst to John, who, after realizing that the inheritance promised by Captain Swanick was a lie simply to get him on board the Greyhound, gave up altogether on any hopes of ever marrying Polly. The meeting between John Sr. and the Catlett family must have been to forge some sort of financial agreement between the two families, preliminaries of custom for marriages of the time, because the only thing standing between John and his marriage to the object of his undying passion was Polly's consent. Upon discovering these arrangements through a family member of the Cantlets, John realized the prospect of marriage to Polly was on the horizon, and his thoughts immediately turned to his employment. 
Just a few months after his return, John made his way to Liverpool and to the office of the one on whose ship he had returned, his father's friend, Joseph Manisty. John could have rightly had some apprehension in meeting with his father's employer again. For some years ago, in his foolish infatuation with Polly, he had purposely disregarded a generous job opportunity in the West Indies that had been arranged by Manisty. But the family friend welcomed the young man warmly and proved to be a guiding father figure to John in the years ahead. Likely hearing of his valiant efforts to keep the Greyhound afloat during the horrific storm from Captain Swanick, Joseph Manisty offered the young sailor a position as captain of one of his many merchant ships. In more overconfident times, John would have jumped at the chance of such a commission. But now, as a more humbled and cautious man, he thought it best to gain more experience as a ship's mate before taking a command. So in August of 1748, John set sail for Africa as first mate on the slave-trading ship named the Brownlow. also leaving behind much of the consistent spiritual exercise he had come accustomed to while living out his newfound faith. John, as with many new to the Christian family, found himself alone in his devotion, becoming susceptible to the old temptations of a past life. Also, his duty as first mate of the Brownlow was to oversee the acquisition of slaves he actively engaged in the dishonest bartering practices with African chiefs and white slavers, trading insignificant baubles at bargain basement prices for human lives. There is little to suggest that he had any hesitation participating in the vicious brutality intrinsic to acquiring, overpowering, and transporting slaves. It must be noted that save the cries of poor, helpless Africans who found themselves below decks in irons, no one else raised any objection to the inhumanity of the slave trade during the early to mid-18th century. In general, it was a cruel Western culture that cared little for the plight of the poor or the subjugation of the helpless. No voice of protest to the slave trade came from the halls of English Parliament, the banquet tables of high society, or even more conspicuously, from the pulpits of Christian churches throughout the land. It would not be until the yearly meeting of the Pennsylvania Quakers in 1758 that the first murmurings of the discrepancy between Christian teaching and the slave trade would be heard. Although we will see later on in John's life that he would go to commendable lengths to preserve the lives of his human cargo and express a personal disdain for the vocation, his attitude and conscience toward the slave trade was a reflection 
of the society around him. With regard to John's spiritual progress, he would never again delve into the depths of such vulgar oaths and blasphemous language he was so well known for prior to that stormy night on the Greyhound in 1748. Yet his manner of life on the Brownlow could hardly be distinguished as that of a follower of Jesus Christ. Of this time he wrote, quote, Soon after my departure from London, I began to grow slack in waiting upon the Lord, vain in my conversation, and though my heart smote me often, I declined fast. And by the time I arrived in Guinea, I seemed to have forgotten all the Lord's mercies. The enemy prepared a train of temptations, and I became his easy prey, lulled asleep into a course of evil of which a few months before I could not have supposed myself any longer capable. I was now fast bound in chains. I had little desire and no power at all to recover myself. But that slumber was soon jolted once again by the hand of providence. While visiting the plantains, no doubt relishing the opportunity to have reluctant hospitality extended him by those who years earlier were his tormenting enslavers, John was stricken with a violent illness, which, once again, brought him to death's door. Bedridden and at times delirious with fever, John's mind was pummeled with all the previous mercies of God he had experienced. All the last-minute escapes from danger and death All the near misses, chance encounters, and deliverances from trouble were severe indictments against the course his life had taken since leaving London. His acts of worship and words of dedication to God at the Lord's table were a humiliation to his fevered brow. At length, he arose from his bed, crept to a secluded part of the island, and there poured out his heart to God, stating, quote, I made no more resolves, but cast myself before the Lord to do with me as he should please. End quote. The pleasure of the Lord was to relent and to restore John, not only to health, but to spiritual peace with God. In just two days, John returned to the ship as well as when he walked on board in London months ago. Shortly thereafter, John experienced yet another instance of unmistakable divine preservation. Part of his duty as first mate of the Brownlow was to shuttle back and forth between the ship and the mainland in the longboat carrying supplies and slaves. Such trips were many and fraught with danger. Just before the Brownlow left the African coast for the West Indies, John had been making daily trips to and from the ship by the longboat, bringing much-needed wood and fresh water aboard in preparation for departure. On what was to be his final excursion to the mainland, John received his usual orders from the captain, then prepared and boarded the longboat. As he was about to push off, the captain came out of his cabin 
calling for John to climb back aboard the ship. Upon reporting to the captain, it was as if the captain had no sure recollection as to why he requested John's return. Undoubtedly thinking he would remember the reason momentarily, the captain sent another man in his place. This sudden change was surprising to John, for since their arrival on the African coast, he had led every such excursion to the mainland. Moments later, the longboat put off from the Brownlow, never to return. Tragically, later that night, while making its way back to the ship, the longboat sank in the river. The person appointed to take John's place was drowned. Upon later questioning the captain's reason for retaining John, no clear answer was given, stating repeatedly that he had suddenly and inexplicably, quote, taken it in his head, end quote, that John was to remain on board the Brownlow. Although he tried to deny any particular supernatural providence, the irreligious captain could not help being affected by the strange turn of events. John, too, was deeply impacted by yet another brush with death, writing later that he, quote, thought it one of the most extraordinary circumstances of his life, end quote. Doubtless, it was an essential step in his spiritual growth because it marked a point of no return. From this point, the faltering steps of John's early Christian experience would no longer take him to such sinful depths of old familiarity. By the time the ship anchored in South Carolina, John was spending much time in personal devotion to God. Although he attended worship while docked in the United States, he had difficulty understanding the preaching. His most profitable times were spent in solitude. Quote, Almost every day when business would permit, I used to retire into the woods and fields. I began to taste the sweets of communion with God in the exercises of prayer and praise. End quote. Although in the evening, his time was spent with fellow crew members in what he termed as, quote, worldly diversions, end quote. He did so as more of a spectator than a participator, writing, quote, As yet I knew not the force of that precept, abstain from all appearance of evil, but very often ventured upon the brink of temptation. But the Lord was gracious to my weakness and would not suffer the enemy to prevail against me, end quote. December of 1749, the Brownlow was docked back in Liverpool. And at a brief meeting with his employer, Joseph Manistee, John was again offered the command of a ship. And this time, he consented. Pleased with his acceptance, he was given several weeks' leave until a suitable ship for Manistee's fleet became available. With the prospect of the respectable position as a ship's captain and the living situation it afforded, John now felt he had the wherewithal to ask for Polly's hand in marriage. This was a task that was 
to some extent, easier said than done. For when it came to the very moment of asking her, he was completely unable to form the request. He later wrote to her recalling the incident, quote, I never shall forget, and you doubtless will remember, the evening when you first gave me your hand as an earnest of what has since followed. How I sat stupid and speechless for some minutes, and I believe a little embarrassed you by my awkwardness. My heart was so full, it beat and trembled to that degree that I knew not how to get a word out. End quote. Evidently, understanding his broken attempt to ask for her hand in marriage, she interpreted his bumbled question and gave her consent anyway. We can take from her willingness that the emotional attachment between the two was mutual. More than seven years after first laying eyes on her, John was married to his beloved Polly at St. Margaret's Church in Rochester on February the 11th, 1750. It is hard to imagine all the twists and turns that had taken place to bring him to that moment, marrying the girl that at so many moments seemed like a far-off mirage more than a possibility. But nevertheless, here he was being joined in holy matrimony to the object of his passion. Once again, John had what he before called, quote, the secret hand of God, end quote, to thank for all the provisional protections and blessings that he was experiencing. But not too long into the marriage, this fact would be, to some degree, lost to John. Although the two were mutually attracted to each other, they were from very different social standings. Polly was well-connected in English society, while John was very rough around the edges from his seafaring life. But despite their differences, the newlyweds were inseparable, so much so that John's preoccupation with wedded bliss caused a lull in his pursuit of spiritual growth. This, combined with Polly's more superficial Christianity, left the two in a free fall spiritually. Of this time, he writes, quote, But alas, I soon began to feel that my heart was still hard and ungrateful to the God of my life. This crowning mercy, which raised me to all that I could ask or wish in a temporal view, and which ought to have been an animating motive to obedience and praise, had the contrary effect. I rested in the gift and forgot the giver. My poor, narrow heart was satisfied. A cold and careless frame as to spiritual things took place, and I gained ground daily, end quote. Added to this was the absolute dread of leaving Polly behind to command Manistee's ship. He could not imagine leaving her for such an extended time. But knowing no other trade than what made up the course of his past, he turned to the lure that attracts so many. He writes, quote, The prospect of this separation was terrible to me as death. To avoid it, I repeatedly purchased a ticket in the lottery, thinking, who knows, but I may obtain a considerable prize and be thereby saved from the necessity of going to sea. Yet the money, which I could not with prudence have spared at the time, was lost. 
All my tickets proved to be blanks, though I attempted to bribe God by promising if I succeeded to give a considerable part to the poor, end quote. But these efforts only compounded the financial pressures on the young couple. In June of 1750, he was roused from any hope of avoiding the inevitable separation from Polly when orders arrived for him to report to London and take command of one of Manistee's ships. One can imagine the pain of John's departure from his new bride for some 15 months of dangerous exploits as a slave ship captain. But the reality of his responsibility awakened him to his need for God. For several months, he had found his pleasure and his preoccupation in the wife he had long sought after. But now their parting would turn his heart once again to seek God. He writes, quote, I was a poor, faint, idolatrous creature, but I had now some acquaintance with the way of access to the throne of grace by the blood of Jesus, and peace was soon restored to my conscience. It became an occasion of quickening me in prayer, both for her and myself. It increased my indifference for company and amusement. It habituated me to a kind of voluntary self-denial, which I was afterwards taught to improve to a better purpose, end quote. In August of 1750, John sailed from Liverpool for the African coast as captain of the Duke of Argyle. John's story will continue with our next episode. Wretched John is a forgotten podcast special series and an Unseen Hand media production written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ForgottenPodcast. Forgotten is available on all the most popular podcasting apps, so be sure to subscribe. Also, please stop in and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Lastly, this podcast would not be possible without an ever-growing group of generous supporters. To find out how you can support the Forgotten Podcast, just go to ForgottenPodcast.com support. And as always, thanks for listening.